Welcome to First Thought, a podcast by Galway International Arts Festival. I'm your host, Katrina Crow, curator of the First Thought Talk series. In this episode, we'll hear from actor and author Kate Mulgrew, best known for starring roles in shows like Star Trek and Orange is the New Black. She joined us as part of the 2019 festival programme to discuss her memoir, How to Forget, which chronicles the time she spent caring for her parents at the ends of their lives. Kate began her first thought talk at the festival by reading a moving excerpt from How to Forget. You can visit Galway International Arts Festival YouTube channel to listen to this excerpt, as well as a lively Q&A that followed Kate's talk. Kate is joined in conversation by Ethna Verling, director of the Galway City Museum. Now, Mrs. So I thought I'd start with an easy question, which is, you said to me earlier that this book essentially is about death and about your, I suppose, dealing with death or making friends with death in some ways. Mm. So would you like to talk about that? Well, I don't think we make friends with death. Do Do we? I think you can, maybe. No, it's my coming to terms Mm. with uh, my own mortality. My first book, Born With Teeth, was about life. Yeah. Uh, And this book is about the loss of my parents and also who they were to one another and how I was shaped. Um, But I have discovered in myself an absolute resistance to death. I'm very attached to the world, Etna, as you well know, as ye have had many a whiskey with me on many a night, (laughs) have you not? I love the world. I love people. I love friendship. I love love. I love my children. I love food. I love the moon. I love it all. So I will be taken kicking and screaming, I reckon. And I don't want that image to be, (laughs) anyone to be assaulted by that image. I'd like to go very calmly, very philosophically. So in writing this book, I unearthed, you're laughing because you know it's a virtual impossibility, right, ladies and gentlemen? Yeah, red alert on that one. I didn't come any closer Mm. to coming to terms with death itself in the writing of this book. The book was not cathartic in any sense. But I came closer to an understanding of the people who gave me life. And that, I think, will help me draw the circle completely to death. What I thought was very interesting about the book as well, and I absolutely love the book. It's a beautifully written book. uh, Very lyrical and very funny and very dark. um, Was that you have two very distinct voices in it. So it's in two halves. First half is about her dad. Second half is about her mum. Uh, and, but they, it could almost have been written by two different people. I wonder, would you like to discuss just your relationship with each of them? Because that piece that you read there was a lovely piece about the three of you together. Yeah. I think that's the only moment in the book mm-hmm. that would be considered a composite moment, when we were relaxed and happy together. Yeah. I had a very different relationship with uh, my father than I did with my mother. Um, I adored my mother. I was the oldest girl in a family of eight children. And for those of you who have shared this commonality, you know what it means then. You, you have an immediate bond with your, with your mother, and in this case, it was a profound one, very soon and very quickly developed. Because of that, I believed that I had a difficult time with my father. He saw that my mother not only championed me and that she loved me, but that she would be coming with me in many ways. And I think this, this encouraged in my father a kind of um, resentment. 
So whereas he loved me, and I loved him deeply, we could not, and I hope I'll be able to read this passage a bit further on, we could not cross that bridge. The bridge was in evidence between us, but for some reason we could not cross it to greet one another. It wasn't, certainly it wasn't enmity, and it couldn't possibly have been rivalry, but it was a kind of enforced detachment that both of us decided that we would, we would simply accept, and we did until the last night when we consumed an entire bottle of vodka in front of a roaring fire, and I asked him all of the questions that had been held in abeyance all those years, and he answered them. Before we come to that last night, mm. you write beautifully about that. Um, would you say that your father, I mean, he had, he had challenges in his own youth with, you know, with his, his own parents. And Cold do you mother. think that, and his mother particularly, do you think that that happens to us in life? I mean, obviously, you know, we are the product of, of our parents combined yeah. and individually and all of that. But I was very struck by the passage, those passages where, his, where he... Well, this is, this is why um, I wrote it. I really needed to try to understand who my father was before mm. I die. It was a, this is not just an impulse and certainly wasn't a whimsy. Uh, this was the tap, tap, tap of the psychic ice pick. I needed to write it. Mm. Uh, my father's parents were very distant, very cold, wonderful social bon vivant, my grandfather, but died at 50 of cirrhosis of the liver. And my grandmother, Genevieve Meisenberg, the beauty of the city, was sort of bought on a, on a bet by my grandfather. Very cold. She had that little, you know, she had that chill about her, that beautiful Arctic beauty, which led directly into the heart. So my father found my mother to be the exact opposite of what he had been raised with. Mm. Full of life, right? Full of the unexpected, full of the spontaneous. She was smart, but she was never cruel. My mother was kind. Mm. He was longing for this, and he fell head over heels in love with her. And of course, this is what happens in life. We fall in love, and we can't find them in that journey. He couldn't find her. Mm. She remained hidden. It's an extraordinary thing, I think. She was. She seemed very elusive to him. Um, was that deliberate? Seemed, yeah, but it seemed like maybe he was coming up to meet her, and she was maybe... Coming back down. Ah, sure, he was him. desperate to have her. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, would you like to talk about that? I think that's really interesting. I could see it. Maybe he knew I could see it. Mm. You know, I was a terrible observer from the time I was <laughs> mm, Watching them. Always, always watching them. Hiding and watching them. I mean, it was intriguing to me. His passion for her was always in evidence. And he was always very eager to conceal it. But he couldn't conceal it. Because his eye was on her all the time. And my father was a terribly attractive handsome, funny, charismatic. But she had no real interest in returning that look. She was busy painting, she was busy talking, she was busy playing the piano, okay. or cooking the tiniest chicken in the world for 10 children. <laughs> I said, Mother, how did you find a one-pound chicken for 20 people? <laughs> that was my childhood. And I make it up for it in Ireland, I'll tell you that. <laughs> True. But that's, I mean, she was also very busy having eight children and having, and 18 miscarriages. 18 miscarriages. Uh -huh. You know? She loved to say that at a dinner party. <laughs> How are you? I'm Joan Mulgrew. I've had 18 miscarriages. <laughs> but you did. 
She but she had a tough time with them, didn't she? I mean, she had a tough time with them. They were awful. In the book, I've written it, and this is true. I doubt that she had 18 miscarriages. But I think she had a lot of miscarriages. My father was home upstairs a lot. <laughs> when I was six years old, I heard it the first time. Katie Kitten Cat Mulgrew, get up these stairs. Wherever I was in that big brick house, deep in the countryside, rigid at attention, I'd run up the stairs. There she'd be, standing, staring over the toilet bowl. Come in here, quickly. In I'd go. The fetus was in the toilet. I need you to bear witness. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then she'd look at me and she'd say, get the pail, the washcloth, and the ginger ale. I'll be in my bedroom for about three days. And then she'd have a migraine, and that's what would happen. Seared in my memory. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That was very tough on her, wasn't it? And then, of course, I mean, I don't want to stay too much with the tragedy, but, you know, she also buried two live children. Two I mean, of that my sisters died, yeah. Huge, huge things to happen to the family, not just I think that was her. the end of it, E. Mm. You know, Maggie, my sister Maggie died, but she was a baby. Tessie died at 14 of a brain tumor. I write about this at length in my first book, Born With Teeth, um, which fractured the family. But I think that when she had her eighth and final baby, my sister Jenny, my mother got out of the car. I remember standing there just watching it all. What was I, 10, 11? She carried the baby, which was just like a pink lump. She handed it into the farmer's daughter's arms, who was our au pair, and she said, good luck to the girl. And she went into the living room and she pulled out of her bag a, a jar, a sort of dark jar, with murky liquid swimming in it. And she placed it up on the mantel when she walked out of the room. Of course, we all ran like lightning to the mantel. And she had labeled the jar in which were floating some strange things, from whence you sprang, she had pickled her ovaries. <laughs> My friends came from far and wide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so just staying with your mother for a moment. Um, in the book you describe, I mean, as I say, the second half of the book is... Uh, is, is entirely different to the first half. And what really struck me was how much fun you had with her. You know, there was an awful lot of laughing. There was, so she fun. loved laughing. She loved laughing. You were skiving off, going to the cinema, checking out vintage clothes. You were taking her when you became a huge success. You took her all over the world with you. Um, what I was just wondering is, what kind of relationship did she have with the rest of your siblings? That's because a you tough were seen question. so intense. Esther, that's a tough question. Mm. Because to answer it honestly, I will say that that is where she lost her footing. Mm. She had eight children in succession. I was the oldest girl. And I was her favorite child. How do I know that? She sort of announced it. <laughs> or, even worse, we would be gathered around her, all of us desperate for a, a crumb of attention. Mom, do you love me? Mom, do you, what do you think? Mom, talk to me about this, Mom. What do you think? Am I pretty? Am I smart? Am I tall? Am I short? Am I big? Am I small? She said, well, you know, no, no, kids. I like all of you. But I like some better than others. <laughs> you know who you are. 
Yeah, that's how I grew up. But you know, in that, in writing the memoir, it takes an awful lot of bravery and courage to write about that, doesn't it? I mean, you're digging deep on your own in that beautiful house in Oakthorard, writing this book. But how much time, or, or I mean, you can't let other people when you're writing, you know, influence it. So, but how much did your siblings' voices come into the book and kind of think, you know, did you stop and think, I can't say that about Joe or Laura or, or what? Well, did you self-censor? How did you, how did you manage it? I self-centered in this regard. I love my siblings. I love my surviving siblings very much, all of them. Some I love more than others. <laughs> <laughs> I love them all. And I did think seriously, long and hard about how do I avoid hurting them in any way? I have a brother who's deeply private. I have a sister who's rather removed. I have a baby sister who's quite vulnerable. I have an older brother who might be a little envious. I don't know. And I went to my mentor, Anne Royfe, the great writer Anne Royfe, and I said, how do I do this? She said, you just don't. Mm. If you're going to walk the plank as a writer, then walk it. Mm. You've got to be honest. The love will surface. The reader will know. But you must write with honesty. Mm. So I did. And I was surprised to find that my brother Joe is featured mm. largely mm. In, in part one because he adored my father. And in part two, it's my brother Sam mm. with whom my mother fell in love That's right. in the fourth year of her Alzheimer's. She fell passionately and erotically in love with her youngest son. But... Uh, I couldn't uh, get away with murder, as they say. Mm. So Joe, I think, feels that I, um, his nerves and sensibility was abraded a little bit by this. Mm. And I think he feels that I, I should not have ventured into this territory. All the others have been very gracious and very loving. Uh, you know, you just can't... I've learned this in life. Life's hard. You have to make a decision. If you're going to be total, be total. Mm. Don't think that equivocation will work on any level, because it won't. Mm. Certainly not in writing, not in acting, and certainly not in love. Mm. So I've written it with my whole heart and soul. And if I've given him any kind of uh, pain, I'm very sorry for it. But if I had to do it again, I'd do the same thing. Does that answer your That's question? No, it is. It is, yeah. absolutely. Because it's about them, E. Mm. It's about mother and dad. I it was is. finding them. Yeah. I was unearthing them. Mm. I mean, I had to put my brothers and my sisters, as much as I love them and as alive as they may be, to one side. This other excavation, this other archaeological dig, was of far more critical importance. So that's what I did. Uh, and central to that is, is, the, is the set piece, I suppose, in the book where you and your father sit down and... Get through a bottle of vodka, I think. Pop-off vodka. Yeah, pop-off. Have you ever had it? The worst. <laughs> Pain the stripper. Cheapest. <laughs> yes, yes. But just that, that night was very revealing, wasn't it? I mean, that, that night really was uh, very, I mean, to say it was very special, it sounds so trite, but it was an extraordinary night for you because you got to ask him all the questions that you had lined up in your head. Would you it say? It was a great night. Yeah. I got what most daughters never get. But I claimed it. Yeah. I claimed it. Mm. Three hours before that night unfolded, I was standing in the doctor's room, examining room with my father. 
and the doctor had told my father, if you do not do chemo and you do not do radiation, Mr. Mulgrew, uh, I'm afraid we cannot buy you much time. What do you mean by much time? I'd say you have a few weeks to live. My father looked at the doctor. Not a lot of line, not a lot of laughs in your line of work, are there, pal? <laughs> Got up, kitten, get my coat. Thank you very much, doctor. I'm sure you're a very decent fellow, but you and I will not be meeting again. Home we drove. My brother left. I lit a fire. I said, how about a cocktail? Now you're talking sugar. I poured the vodka. I came in. And I said to myself, I'm going to ask you all the questions that have been kept from you all these years. All the questions I've longed to ask. And he answered them. So we had five hours in front of that fire that night. And I asked him everything. You've incredible recall. You know, you remembered... Well, so would you if you had a night like that. I know, I suppose, yeah. But it's wonderful. I mean, in your book, your, me- your memory is so strong of things, you know, smells and tastes and how it was. But that night in particular... Well, mind you, I'm, take- I'm, I'm keeping a journal the whole time. Okay. Everything's yeah. written, yeah. right? Yeah. So this yeah. is... I'm going to stop pulling this from yeah. darkness. I wrote... Mm. Certainly I wrote everything that happened that night mm. because he revealed so much to me. Mm. He confided in me that night about death. I'm going to die. And then looked at me, laughing, said, I'm sure you're dying to know how I feel about dying. (laughs) I said, I am. (laughs) He said, I don't fear it, but I don't welcome it either. Now let's talk about God. For an hour, he talked to me about God. How he'd lost God, reclaimed him for a moment, and then lost him utterly when his second daughter died. We talked about his love for my mother. And I'll never forget it. He pointed to the room where she was lying like a fossil, rigid in the other room with Alzheimer's. Not that woman, he said. Mm. The one I knew. The one I loved. And at the very end of the evening, after everything had been shared, he said, I'm afraid to to tell you that my last words tonight are going to be, will you help me up the stairs? That's right. I did. I settled him in the bed. And he looked at me and said, thank you for everything you have done for this family. Mm. That, that's the chapter that I read. I went into my room and looked out over the lawn, sylvan lawn with the moon shining, and I thought, those were my father's last words to me. Thank you for everything you've done for this family. Not, I love you. Not thank you for being who you are. Mm. Thank you for everything you've done for this. Formal all the way mm. into oblivion formal. That was a hell of a thing, you know? What a way to say goodbye. What a way. Yeah. In the meantime, as you, meanwhile, as you said, your mother was in the other room and suffering from, mm-hmm. from Alzheimer's. So that was obviously a much slower trajectory. With Nine years it took for her to die. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And how was that? How did that... I mean, you had a really busy schedule. You had three children. You were living in L.A. a lot of the time. You full-time, I think, at that stage. Um, how did you manage all of that? You know, I've had a lot to drink this week. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to just tell you, when you love someone the way I loved my mother... 
You'd just do anything for them. Mm. She was life to me. She was representative of everything I adored about life. Surely she had shaped me to be who I was in many, many ways and instilled me with the passion uh, that's allowed me to have the life that I've had. I'm the one who forced the diagnosis for which my father never forgave me. What the hell? She doesn't need to see anybody. She's fine. Your mother, she's eccentric. You are... I said, this isn't an eccentricity, Dad. Mm. Something's wrong. I'm taking her in. I'm taking her in whether you like it or not, and I did. And the doctor there and then said, it's Alzheimer's. And I remember, you know, in that exam, uh, they make you draw a clock, they make you walk across the floor, you answer a series of questions. I'm sure many of you in this room are familiar with that test. Uh, and she had her little hand balled into a fist through most of the examination. Mrs. Mulgrew, what year is it? And she named the year. What month is it? And she named the month. And then he said, and who is the President of the United States? And then she said, who cares? <laughs> and the doctor said, well, I do. I do, Mrs. Mulgrew. And I'd like you to tell me who the President of the United States is. And she looked at the doctor and she said, well, I like him. I think I like him. And then her hand unclosed. And the doctor said, Mrs. Mulgrew, are you cheating on your Alzheimer's test? <laughs> she had written the president's name. <laughs> All of it. And so you see what she was prepared to do. At any rate, the sentence was given. We walked out to the parking lot. I was with my then-husband, Tim Hagen, my younger brother, Sam. I said to Sam, take mom home. I'm going to stop at the market and get some food, make us a nice dinner. I'll be along shortly. My husband and I drove down the highway that I'd driven down all my life, got into the market. I went over to get some potatoes. And I just lost it. Something about holding a potato. And then I saw her hand. And I realized what was upon us. But I could not have foreseen the grotesqueries that we were about to witness. Mm. Falling in love with my brother was the least of it. Mm. The loss of everything she loved, everything that defined her, the painting that she lived for, mm. the sculpting that she adored, the cooking. And was that how, that was over a nine year period or was that? It goes quicker? pretty quickly. Yeah. Pretty quickly, within the first couple of years, those switches are mm. flipped off, which is why after the diagnosis and after that scene uh, in the snow, my mother said to me, kitten, I want to talk to you. Come up to the room and close the door and lock it. Now you know and I know that this is all I have. And you are not going to let that be taken from me if you love me. You're a smart girl. You've always been a smart girl. And I know I can rely on you to get the pills. Go and get the pills and give them to me. And that's all I will ask of you. 
So I went to Los Angeles, and I went to the doctor, who was a friend of mine, and I said, is such a cocktail available? And the doctor said, indeed, it's six, about six pills. And then she looked at me and this friend of mine, and she said, but I wouldn't worry about it, Kate. I said, what do you mean? She said, by the time you get them to her, she'll have forgotten that she ever asked. And indeed, she never mentioned it again. By that time, she had entered the thicket. And then shortly after that, she was on her knees. Then she was in a full crawl. And then it was oblivion. She was a very interesting woman. Um, I wonder, would you like to... We were, we were at the opera together the other night, uh, which is wonderful opera. And Rosemary Kennedy. Kennedy. Have any of you seen that one? Yes. Quite good. Uh, terrific. But, um, so she, 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 was very, she was very friendly with the Kennedy. She spent all her summers... They saved died. her. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. I came across a letter she wrote to Rose Kennedy. I guess she must have been about, I mean, I don't know, 55? Mm. Jean Kennedy was my mother's best friend. They met at Sacred Heart boarding school when they were both about eight. My mother lost her mother in childbirth and all the Kennedys were sent off to boarding school and they met and my mother said to Jean, I don't have a mother. I have a stepmother whom I loathe. And Jean said, well, you're coming home. So it was Boston and New York and Hyannis in the summer. And they really did save my mother's life and she wrote this love letter to Rose. Rose, dear Rose, I can never thank you enough for saving my life as a young girl. I felt so welcome at that big mm. table, right? Where Joe sat at one end, Rose at the other, where the conversation was robust and vital and everybody joked, where there was football by moonlight, everybody sailed. She said it was just extraordinary. Of course, she was in love with Jack, who was <laughs> But yeah, that was a, a, a deep and important relationship, another defining one for her. And it strikes me that she kind of brought that atmosphere to your family because you're table, around your table, you were always cut and thrust and good crack and she, liked she didn't that. tolerate boredom. She didn't like... But on that note, I will say that the great commonality between the Kennedys and my mother was that very, I mean, oh, the Kennedys are very, very, you know, a funny, a witty, a smart, fast, all of them, all of them like that, right? They never talk about the tragedies, never talk about dance, because they just won't go down there. It's never dark, it's always up, it's always great. And my mother was the same. Right? Let's keep the conversation going. Who's going to amuse me? Who's entertaining? But it detaches you from the artery of life, which mm. is love. Mm. It, it really precludes vulnerability. So that I grew up sort of maybe knowing uh, how to entertain my mother, but not how to expose myself to my mother. Mm. And I that's didn't. That's very interesting, isn't it? And I didn't, and I'm only learning now mm. that that's in fact the trick of life. And, that, and what's kind of interesting and poignant about that is, is your father, you know, you, you talk about him and his ambition, um, or his lack of ambition, I suppose, or his diminishing ambition, and that, and that he never had the right ambition for, his, for your mother, because she was in that kind of space, in a well, different space. Her ideal was Jack Kennedy, are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> Jack Kennedy and all those guys, that was my mother's ideal. Yeah. My father was... Uh, my father was a great guy, breathtakingly good-looking, very witty. But he was not. His ambition was not big. Or she, maybe not big enough for her. Who knows? But it, it, I wonder if mm. anything would have really suited her in that regard. Yeah. I'm not sure. She loved men. Loved mm. men. <laughs> All a bit men. like you. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> what did you say, Mrs.? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Bennett's over there. He's going to get you. I'm a little more selective. <laughs> <laughs> but can we go back? Um, just, you know, reading about your house in Derby Grange and the, the fun and the wildness of you all running around the place. You were quite bookish as well. You used to be found in kind of corners reading quietly. So you weren't always kind of racing around. But um, what, what propelled you to leave home at 16? Because, you know, you had this very kind of, I suppose, secure setting, you know, rural setting and in Dubuque. What, 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 what propelled you to leave? You had this, this very, I suppose, you were very fixed on, on, on acting, maybe. Was it, you were really interested in that? Your mother was encouraging you. Your father wasn't encouraging you. So, but 16 seems quite a, a young age to be just this trajectory where you, you know, flew the nest and really flew the nest. Yeah. Well, I did her bidding. Yeah. I wanted to be a writer. It's taken me 60 years. I thought I was going to be a great poet. And I said to my mother when I was 12, Mother, you have to come to school. I, there's the poetry recital, and I've, I'm going to recite all of my original poems to the nuns and, and to you. Oh, she said, can't wait, kid. <laughs> so there I, I, I went up to the, in front of the, the school, and I saw my mother leaning against the door jam at the back of the room, and she had her kerchief tied around her, her head. And I read my poems. And I looked down, and the nuns were weeping, so I knew I was a great success. <laughs> and I got in the car, and my mother was strangely silent, and I thought, why is she so quiet? All the way home. <laughs> and she stopped the car and turned off the ignition just before we went through the gates. And she turned to me and she said, you know, Kitty, you can either be a mediocre poet or a great actress. Which do you think is the better choice? I said, well, I guess an actress. She said, that's it. <laughs> Let's get cracking. She said, I want you to read the entire Shakespearean canon. Let's get going. You need to look at conservatories over the summer. I was 12. <laughs> and I was out of that house with serious 16? motivation at yeah. 16. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit? I mean, you have, you know, as, as Katrina was saying, you have... 45 years of a huge canon, four probably really seminal, very strong female roles, loads of fantastic theatre, loads of films. But so maybe just to take us back, your first big role was with was as Mary Ryan. Mary Ryan. Mary Ryan's Hope in, mm -hmm. in New York. Mm -hmm. So you had you had huge success very early on. I did. And I was just wondering how did that feel, you know, in terms of you had a huge work ethic, still have a huge work ethic. I do. You work really hard. Mm. But how did it feel to have that success? I mean, you had people, as you call them, your peeps. You had people, you know, from when you were 20, 21. It was kind of extraordinary life, wasn't it? I, well, I know I actually really want to ask you, how do you stay so grounded in all of that? Because you're one of the most grounded people I know. Well, that's a better question. That's a better question. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Do uh, you really think I'm grounded? I do. I don't know that I'm that grounded. You are very grounded. I'm grounded enough in my discipline, certainly. I can work hard. There was nothing like Star Trek Voyager for work. I'll tell you that. I mean, that was 18, 16, 18 hours a day for seven years. In four and a half inch heels, mind you. And three children. And two children, children at home yeah. that I'm raising. Yeah. Uh, I was divorced, a single mother. Uh, so I am not afraid of hard work. I embrace it. Uh, and I would say if you combine that discipline 
with even a modicum of passion, you're well on your way. Mm. And I had iron discipline and great passion. Mm. I wanted to be a very good actress. Mm. To that end, I studied with Stella Adler. I mean, I really mm. threw myself into it. But I was not without great confidence. I had confidence. Yeah. Perhaps my mother had given this to me. Perhaps I just had it. I don't know. When you ask me, how did I feel when I found myself mildly famous at 20? Mm. I think I thought, oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Because in 45 years, I can assure you, it's gone like this. Mm. It has not been a trajectory, I, like Meryl Streep. It has been, you know, where's the road? Finding the road again, finding the road, losing it, finding it, losing it, finding it. But I've had four remarkable lily pads. I had Mary Ryan, Mrs. Columbo, Captain Jane Wayne, Galena Resnikoff. Most yeah. actresses just don't come close mm, to that. That's right. That. Thank you. Penny is with me. Stop it. Um, just to talk, what, there's two things I wanted to ask you about. One was we were just talking earlier about the gender pay gap and about how it was, say, as Captain Janeway, you were the main, you were the female lead, obviously, surrounded by a lot of men. I was the first female yeah. captain of a starship. starship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Evidently of the Starship Enterprise, according to the <laughs> So funny. She said it four times, she had no idea why everybody was in. Different. <laughs> um, but, so that, that, I mean, it was, it was wonderful, I'm sure, but as you said, it was 16, or 16 hours a day. How many days a week were you working? You I got five days off. a week. Yeah. But the press was expected, demanded, certainly, the first couple of seasons. Um, and the weekend was devoted to the boys. But I mean, I was in a coma on the soccer field, you know what I mean? It was really hard, mm. really hard, because I'm not a fool. Uh, I, played the li I played Catherine Hepburn in a one-woman show called Tea at Five, and I researched her to within an inch of her life. And I discovered that she was very self-examined. And she said about herself when she was a young woman, I'm not going to have children ever. It's going to be about me. Once you have a child, you're dead. And she's right. Once you have a kid, it's about the kids. Now, I'll tell you all this, and don't, don't feel sorry for me. Well, you can if you want to. <laughs> but my boys never saw me on, Star, uh, on Voyager. They've never seen me on television. They've never seen me on TV. They'll come to the theater but they won't watch me on television. Mm. Because their memory of television is my absence. Mm. And for that, I will not be forgiven. Mm. No, you can't have it all. No, you can't have it all. No, you can't. I did the best. I hate that expression. We talked about that mm. earlier today, mm. didn't we? Yeah. Everybody says, oh, I'm doing the best I can. The fact is, we make choices. I wanted it all. Mm. And I guess you can't have it all, eh? Mm. Well, you made a good stab at it. I made a good stab. Mm. But I think that that was hard on them. Very hard. Yeah, well, they've turned out pretty good. Um, they have? They have. <laughs> kidding, yeah. kidding. Um, can we just talk for a moment about... about uh, <laughs> can we talk about um, Orange is the New Black? Yes. I mean, this is an amazing role. Mm. Um, and it was an amazing series. So it's, it's a kind of a groundbreaking series. It was a flagship for Netflix. Yeah. Still is. 
It's coming into its seventh season. You've recorded the seventh season. You're about to fly off to launch that next week. Yeah. Um, what was it like playing in that kind of huge ensemble cast and, and playing a character over, you know, who has a, a very different trajectory over that seven seasons and over that period? I mean, you must have really got stuck into it. Well. You had to get stuck into it. You know, I'm an it. old dog. Mm. So when I went down, we all had to audition. Nobody was offered anything. Everybody had to audition, certainly the top roles. And I was given this very slight piece of paper, not, this, not even this big. Galina Reznikov is of Russian uh, extraction, but she's fully assimilated into the American culture. So please, in your audition, don't lay on that. Just tap it ever so lightly. We don't want, any, we don't want the audience thinking about anything about Russia. Oh, okay. <laughs> but this is what came out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. And guess what? I think they wanted a real Russian, right? <laughs> but you so, learned Russian for it. It wasn't Russian, and she wanted a real Russian actress. Mm. She scoured the world for a real Russian actress. She had them all come in, and they were very good at doing that, and they were very good at doing this and that. <laughs> but they didn't know how to weep, mm. and they didn't know how to be tough, <laughs> and all that stuff that comes so naturally to me. <laughs> uh, I loved her. Mm. I loved her, and I loved Tit Punch. If any of you have seen it, that's the episode, the name of the episode that introduces Red Reznikov, right? She wants to be a part of the Russian, you know, group. She wants to be in the in-group with the Russian women. So she's always running after them and telling them that stupid joke about the eggplant. And they keep saying, we don't get your stupid jokes, right? And once she just screamed and she said, you don't get it because you're stupid. And I punched her tit. And the tit goes... And the Russian husband comes to my husband and says, that's all right. Your wife wants to go around punching tits? That's 50 grand. Or else. 50 grand, we don't know. So I took the fall. And that's when I went to Litchfield. And the first few years were absolutely intoxicating. I knew there was no pony like this ever before in television. Mm -hmm. That it was the advent of the golden age of television. That Netflix was in the vanguard. That Genji Cohen was a genius. Mm -hmm. And that Piper Kerman had let that slender little autobiography slip through her fingers and we were off Mm -hmm. to the races. And then it did get very, very crowded, I felt, Mm -hmm. in season five. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were 500 women on the call sheet, right? It, It was a lot. But Genji's idea was, and don't ever argue with the genius, that's the truth of prison. So it's over now. It's over, yeah. It will stream on the 25th, the last season. And for those of you who are fond of Orange is the New Black, get out your tissues. (laughs) Get your wine. And get your buddy. Because it's tough. Oh, did you think it was going to be happy? Really tough. Um, Next question. Next question. <laughs> okay, here, here's a question. Mm-hmm. What, is your, what was your favourite role of all? 
Of all? Of all. Oh, you can't do that, love. Okay. TV and theatre and movies? Okay, let's say theatre. What was your favourite role in theatre? <sighs> I'm supposed to say Hedda Gobbler because it's the greatest role written for a, a woman, one of the greatest, right? Mm. Hedda Gobbler, Ibsen being the master of modern theatre. And it was great, but I'm not sure I was up to her. I was up to Clytemnestra in Iphigenia. Uh, I would say that I loved playing Clytemnestra. Mm. Yep, there's a silence falling over the group. <laughs> but it was, I mean, Greek tragedy. Yum. And what, and what about Catherine Hepburn? That, that, that I was loved pro- that. That was reprised uh, a number of times, wasn't it? Yeah, but it was exhausting. It's a one-woman show. It's very mm. lonely. Mm. And I had to exercise that discipline again. You know, that's lonely life. Mm. You don't go out. You can't go out. Mm. You have to go home. You have to rest your voice. I mean, in Act One, I'm all over it. And in Act Two, I'm doing this every, you know, every night. <laughs> in front of people all over the place. It, it, it really had to go home. Mm. Yeah. Okay, here's another question for you. Um, we were talking about... But life. let me answer this. Okay. Captain Janeway, of course. <laughs> but really, <laughs> how could she not be? You know I didn't get the role, those of you who really know. It went to the great French-Canadian actress, Jean-Vierre Bougeot, who lasted, I think, uh, 24 hours. And she called in the producers, and she said, I don't want you. Who can work like this? It's insane. C'est fou. I have a child, I have a life, I can't do it, I'm going home. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> and they brought back in the five of us, who were sort of front-runners, and uh, I did my audition, I got the part, and I was shot out of that cannon, and I make my first entrance onto the bridge from my ready room. And I remember standing in there with the director, Rick Colby, shaking like a leaf, because if this is the bridge, and you guys in the front seat, there were 50 men in suits. <laughs> Let's see what this little broad has to offer. I mean, they were absolutely defying me, I felt. So, Colby said to me in the ready room, it's your living room. This is your home. Take it. Good. Ready room doors open. And I walked out, and that was a brilliant moment. Mm. Did you learn much science? Did I learn what? Much science. Much what? Science. Space science. Astronomy. Oh. Did you learn much about? About astronomy? Yeah. Oh, I didn't <laughs> Are you kidding? They should have given me a medal for that techno babble. And Patrick Stewart and I have talked about it. It's agony. It would have, I would have preferred Japanese. In fact, I wanted Japanese. In fact, I called and said, make it Japanese. That technobabble was absolutely out of this world, and I had pages of it. And I was getting up at 3.30 in the morning and leaving my two little boys and driving to Paramount Studios. And I finally said to myself, there's got to be an easier way, because I'm dying. I'm going to find out what it means. And I went to the Akuta Bible, which led me to Richard Feynman, the great physicist, and I started to read. And in fact, almost everything on Star Trek Voyager that emanated from this month was rooted in fact. 
and in science. And once I understood that and I could make those associations, then I endowed it with so authenticity. So you did learn lots of science. Yeah, I did. Excellent. But astronomy, you know, I don't know. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Kate, if you were, if you were, had a gun to your head and you were told you could act or you could write, which would you do? Now? Yeah. You're a little devil. <laughs> you really are. She knows she's got me. I can't have both. I love this process of writing. Wow, it's liberating at this stage. I never thought I'd get it. And I have. And this is my second book. Truly, uh, the most enriching process. So quiet, so lonely. But solitude now is something I love. Whereas when I was a young actress, I, I, I couldn't have borne it, I don't think. I suppose if you forced my hand. <laughs> and I cannot tell a lie. <laughs> I don't know. I suppose I'd, because we're all Pavlovian, aren't we? I suppose I'd have to take acting. I know it. <laughs> I know it. I'm familiar with it. It feels safe. This is a dark hole. This is a black hole. This is tough, you know? I never knew where I was going. And I was staying in this absolutely beautiful house on La Corrib in the wintertime. Sheets lacerating rain day after day <laughs> in the bleak, damp winters of Western Ireland, right? But the conditions were perfect mm. because it made me so lonely and so frightened and so focused that whatever, that, that this was forced out mm. and the truth came out. I love that. Do you understand what I mean? Whereas when you're young, you love the other. So I'm not, I don't know. I, it, I want them both. Okay. <laughs> Do you think there's another one pottering away somewhere? Another book or another, another book. role? Another book. Yes, there is another book. Mm. <laughs> I'm already talking about it. It's a novel. Oh. There may be a murder, <laughs> depending on my mood. There will be love affairs, abounding. <laughs> now, I'm just conscious that maybe, would you like to read another? Shall I read one more brief passage? Yeah. And then what we'd like to do, which I'd like to do, I'd like to take questions. If some of you have questions, right? Now, I read you a nice passage. This is a little bit darker. Um, my father has not much time to live. Uh, very little time. Sitting on my father's bed, waiting for him to die, I took my time before calling down to Joe. I wanted to be alone with my father. I wanted to rest with him. I studied his face for what I knew would be the last time and felt as I had always felt when my father slept, that he was never really completely asleep, but only waiting to be disturbed by the rude noises of children, his wife playing Chopin badly on the piano, a car full of friends pulling into the driveway, a daughter across the hall packing her suitcase, cursing the insufficiency of her wardrobe. He had been eager for me to leave the nest. This was something I felt acutely, 
and consequently I had moved in that direction with preternatural focus. Why he was so anxious for me to get out of the house and into the world remains a mystery and one that will never be solved. The evidence, however, suggests that he was self-centered and maybe a little jealous. He was tired of watching me monopolize my mother's time and attention and was further frustrated by her obvious pride in me. She had always championed me and in an act of deliberate perverseness, my father took the opposite approach. Perhaps he thought he was preparing me for the harsh realities of the world, or perhaps he didn't give a damn. I'm inclined to believe that he didn't really care what I did or where I went, as long as I got the hell out of his hair. In fairness, I think he felt this way about all of us. What had begun as a romantic ideal had ended in weariness and grief. This was the result of producing too many children at too rapid a rate, and then, out of a general sense of indifference, leaving them to grow up essentially unsupervised. My father saw me perform exactly twice over the course of 30 years. The first time was when I played Tamara in a very fraught production of Titus Andronicus at the Delacourt Theater in Central Park. Sitting in my underground dressing room, shared by all of my fellow actresses, I heard my father's voice rising above the din, when the hell is halftime? <laughs> Many years later, my father escorted me to a screening of an independent film I'd shot in Ireland with Richard Burton. He agreed to do this because the film was being shown at a theater in Dubuque, Iowa, to help raise funds for a local charitable institution. When it was over, I leaned in and asked him what he thought of it, to which he immediately responded, couldn't understand a goddamn word. <laughs> Curmudgeonly and critical though he may have been, at the root of it, he simply couldn't be bothered. He knew enough about my career to take his jabs with precision. Kitten, a nickname I loved, was more and more often replaced by sobriquets such as Hollywood or Big Shot. And, though he made it clear this was all in jest, it always stung. I was careful to conceal this from my father, who was extremely intolerant of petulance and whose response to hurt feelings was to further belittle the victim. If he was unpredictable as a young father, he was seldom cruel. It was only after Tessie died and he'd sold his business that he became increasingly solitary. But when his solitude was threatened, he could move with the lightning speed of a scorpion. We cannot escape our DNA. And as my father advanced into old age, he withdrew into himself rather than become the brute his father had been. As for his mother, my grandmother, none of us was encouraged to come home for her funeral. Don't bother, my father said to me on the phone. She's dead as a door now. <laughs> and yet, I never ceased to long for his approval, for a warm glance, a wink, I had, after all, danced on his shoes when I was five. And according to him, it was I who drove him to drink when, at the age of six months, I discovered the unutterable delights of solid food and expressed this unbridled passion by dumping whole jars of pureed bananas on my head. <laughs> it was not disappointment, but rather heartbreak I experienced when, at the age of seven, I felt myself being lifted into my father's arms and heard him say, 
This is the last time I carry this one up the stairs. Jesus, she's all there, isn't she? (laughs) He could convert himself into a frighteningly perfect gorilla and would chase us through the house until, screaming for mercy, we threw ourselves at his feet. He could roll up the rug and transform the dining room into a dance floor if he had a mind to. For a long time, he made my mother laugh until she cried. And for many years, he carried himself with aplomb. When his beauty eroded, he accepted it with with apparent grace and went about the business of growing old with discretion and dignity. It's true, he was a terrible miser, and for this he cannot be forgiven. But even this was overlooked when he'd accept a drink, a head rub, or a soft-boiled egg, and looking at you say, your ace is in my book, sugar. He had for me a charisma that remained undimmed by time. In his presence, there was always the possibility of love. It hovered ever near, and though it seldom showed itself, it was distinctly real. Occasionally, finding myself alone with my father in the living room, I would sense the distance between us softly closing and something else opening up. It was more than the need for a drink or the sudden impulse for company. It was a silent bridge that we acknowledged a bridge that ran between us, one that we saw and felt but somehow could not cross. He would glance up then as if surprised to find me there. And in that moment, I would read in his eyes what he could not say. And I understood that in this withholding lay all of the sorrows of his life and all of the regret. Thank you. Thank you for listening to First Thought. To watch Kate Mulgrew read from her memoir, How to Forget, and tune into her Q&A with the audience, visit the talk section of Galway International Arts Festival website on giaf.ie.